Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham Morning Bus Sport Review. Today we are doing the Liverpool Media Industrial Complex. Now, usually I sort of, you know, basically go through the history of something and then come up with a conclusion. But with this one, I'm going to do it slightly differently. I'm going to start with my conclusion and then work my way back and really show old school, show my working. Really, I think with, with Liverpool, on what used to bother me over the last maybe five, ten years... As things like social media and the amount of stuff on the internet and televisions expand and all the rest of it was the just overwhelming amount of Liverpool people in the media, sort of ex-players, managers and all the rest of it. And for years I, I couldn't quite work out why. Because every club has, you know, their ex-players and ex-managers who are some of them in the media and they're always quite positive or something like Twitter. It's like we Spurs have Graham Roberts who's always positive and Mickey Hazard and, the, you know, they're harmless. They don't do anything wrong. They're just passionate about the club. They're just as much in love with it. And it's a way for supporters to link themselves with their sort of heroes. And, you know, they're, you know, obviously they're a bit biased. But that's not the end of the world. They're not. And I think what I used to find is that Liverpool, whenever anything good happened or bad, there'd always be sort of like a, an excuse or they'd be, you know, really positive. And it, it annoyed me. And I can never quite work out why. And until I think quite recently... Because I think in the end what I've realised is, is that you have all of these Liverpool players. So you've got Gerrard, Carragher, McManaman, David James, any number of other players from, from you know, the sort of 80s, you know, like um, Lawrence and Hansen. And in the end you, you sit there and think, well, all of these people are very intelligent. They've all made quite a bit of money from their sort of television careers. And they're all very good at what they do. And yet... They've never managed to make Liverpool great again, you know. They've never, they, you know, they've never come up with the answer. They're they're basically diagnosticians. In other words, they can tell you when Liverpool are doing something well. They can tell you when Liverpool aren't doing something well, but they've got no overall solution. They're not going to cure it. They're not actually going to strengthen the patient. They're not going to make Liverpool what that was when they were playing. And this is more obviously the sort of Hanson, Lawrence, and. And this is what what you have is, is I love talking to people, older people, about Liverpool because it always fascinates me. Because especially if they were Liverpool fans or they weren't, but they've always got this sort of one thing. It's just how dominant they were, especially at Anfield. Or it always seemed like they would win, and there was always a a method. And you had the sort of the boot room, and all you know they had the cop, and all of this sort of cultural importance, and just how big Liverpool were. In just terms of, they seem to dominate the 70s and 80s to a tiny extent, sort of the late 60s. And yet, you now look at it and you, you can really almost separate it. You can almost sort of say, well, maybe when you know, Michael Thomas scores that goal and Arsenal win the league. And then from then on, things have never quite been the same again. To the point where now... Because of Liverpool's you know, huge importance to the game, that's why there's so many media people who have a Liverpool connection. And that's fine, and I, I respect and understand that importance, and that's why you know this sort of generation, it's a, there's a few more Man United, so you've got Skulls, Keane, you know, Giggs to an extent, they've done a bit of TV work, and the Neville brothers. And I, you can understand that, that's what happens. When you have a team that's that successful, they then will dominate the sort of media market and schemes. But what what do you have with Liverpool ninety to the present day? What what do they stand for? Because we all know what old Liverpool stood for. 
they would always win. They were dominant. You know, home, abroad, at Anfield, possibly away from home. They always had the great players and they were tough. And they had the boot room and the managers, one after the other after the other. Well, what do current Liverpool have then? What do, what do they stand for? Because they're clearly not dominant in that, you know, old Liverpool way. What does new Liverpool stand for? So, really, the, what, I, what I feel it distills to is that it's, it's all about resource. It's always about great players, and especially great attacking players. And it's great football to an extent. And it's cup finals. And you have these sort of magical runs. You have the sort of Rogers magical run in the league with Suarez, Sterling and Sturridge. And you have a couple of magical cup runs in, in Europe. So you have the, you go to the Champions League final under Rafa the Gaffer. They win it. They lose it a couple of years later. And this sort of magical run last year to the, the Europa League final. But there's no sustained runs to it. They, you know, they never compete year after year in the league. You know, they don't often actually qualify for the Champions League on a regular enough basis in the last sort of five, ten years. And they get to a lot of cup finals, especially the League Cup, to an extent the FA Cup. They get to a couple of European finals. They have the sort of the treble that they win when it's the League Cup, the FA Cup and the UEFA Cup, now the Europa League. And the, the games all seem to have the same qualities to them. You have these sort of scrape pass games. They, they scrape past Birmingham twice in the League Cup final, sort of nearly you know, sort of eight, nine years apart. But they're both scrappy games. The second one, they win on penalties. The first one, they win in extra time. And neither of those two Birmingham teams are brilliant Birmingham teams. You've got the, sort of the Olympiacos group stage Champions League game in 2005. No one ever remembers the actual context of it. Is that all you see is that last minute Gerald Screamer, the the commentator goes nuts. But it doesn't really tell you the full story. It's like, well, the, it was the final game of the group stages. They had to beat Olympiacos at home by, I think it was maybe one or two clear goals. And it was scrappy. They end up get, needing this last minute winner. They're just about to be knocked out of the Champions League. And Gerald comes up with this moment of pure genius. But it's like, well... Surely they should have basically been able to beat Olympiacos quite easily at Anfield with the crowd and all the rest of it, but they don't. They end up sort of scraping past with this moment of Gerrard. It's a bit like the same thing happens with this sort of West Ham FA Cup final round about that time. It needs a sort of one-legged Steven Gerrard last-minute you know, screamer into the bottom corner to win one of the greatest cup finals, modern cup finals. But again, it's, it's not a great West Ham team. They're not really that good. Really, the, the Liverpool, old Liverpool never really needed a one-legged Steven Gerrard one. Sometimes they needed late heroics, but not to beat West Ham. And you then get these sort of insane magical games and you know, sort of comebacks where you've got like the, the Dortmund game, where you know they do okay in the first leg. I think they drew one all. And then they're a couple of goals down to Dortmund. They're going nowhere. And then they just out of nowhere pull off this old Anfield comeback. You've got the Alaves, you know, UEFA Cup final. Alaves are a good side. They've gone on a nice cup run. They got to the final, just happy to be there. And they win 5-4, and it's quite a sloppy game, but it's brilliant to watch. All of the, a lot of the games I'm talking about, except for maybe the Birmingham League Cup finals, they're all pretty good games to watch. But there's something about it. In other words, there just always seems to be a need for a comeback. They're defensively always a bit pony. They're always needing something from somewhere, some moment of genius to get through. 
you've got this sort of the Chelsea game in the two thousand five uh, Champions League semi. They go through, but they go through on that the the ghost goal when Luis Garcia. We're never. We're not sure if it crossed the line. It doesn't look like it's crossed the line, but they get through somehow. It's not particularly beautiful over the two legs, and that's what I think ended up happening. And you get really with a football club. You, you've got basically a troika. You've got the ownership and the executives. You've got the managers and the players, and you've got the fans. And I think many people don't understand how the fans can really influence. I think there's always this. Especially in, in the media, there's always this concept of, well, you just pay your money and all you can do is boo the players or have a go at the manager or go online. Maybe have these sort of mini little protests like the ones that Arsenal fans are doing against Fenger. But I, I, I disagree. I think that there's actually a more subtle way that you can, a, a fan base can affect, you know, what the club is doing. I think the classic example is Spurs in the Europa League the last sort of three, four years. Now, Whitehalling doesn't sell out for these games, even when the tickets are cheap, even when we're playing someone who, at first glance, looks Champions League, like a, a Basel, an Inter Milan, even in the later stages of the tournament, yeah, even when we play a, a, you know, a Lyon. Teams that are regular in the Champions League who are good enough at football for it to be a decent game. But the fan, it never sold out. The atmosphere was never quite as electric as a league game or a Champions League game. And it was, and the fans, when we got knocked out, they were sort of disappointed, but it was a mild disappointment. They were never really that angry. It was almost a, well, actually, now we're out. We can just move on with our lives, move on with the season. Which is... And the players sort of ended up getting that vibe. The owners and the managers, they seemed to act in the same way. And I think the point was is that for Spurs... Because we have this great European history, you know, especially in the, in the UEFA Cup. you got 71, you know, 84, you know, they, sorry, 72 and 84. And they've had other cup runs and everything else like that. And yeah, the Europa League just summed up that they weren't as good as Arsenal. Because Arsenal were just in the Champions League every single year. You know, they were just part of the furniture there. And that, and by the few times that we fell into the Europa League, what would always happen is, is that, you know, we'd end up losing someone. You, you'd lose a, a Modric, you'd lose a Bale, and the damage that that would do, I think psychologically as well, is that as a result, no matter even when they sat there and said, okay, it's now if you win it, you you get the Champions League place. Even that doesn't seem to change people's minds. Because I think for a huge amount of Spurs fans, is that if, if they took the Europa League seriously, that was their kind of level. The sort of Seville level, where you get the wins and you can win it on a you know, semi-regular basis and you get great moments, and but that's it. You don't really get anywhere further. In other words, Seville don't, Sevilla don't compete really with Barca, Real. They lose their players to Barca, Real, and Atletico. And that's the difference. I think, you know, just striving, even just to ignore the Europa League, was hugely important for Spurs fans to say that we could keep our players, we can qualify for the Champions League, we don't have to just settle for this. And luckily enough, it's worked. But it could have easily gone the other way if they hadn't had a manager as good as Pochettino and all the rest of it. But that's how a fan base can affect a football club. 
And I think this is the difference with Liverpool, especially last season, when you knew that the longer, deeper they got into that tournament, the less likely they were to finish in the top four. And I think for Liverpool fans, they were a completely different attitude. It was like, yeah, but we can win this. And so in the end, they really, in effect, torpedoed their season. And they also then went, yeah, they also got to the League Cup final, in which they lost, you know, to Man City in a really tight, interesting game. But they didn't qualify for the Champions League. In the end, they were quite lucky to miss the Europa League entirely. But that was more by luck than that was by deliberate planning. And so, I think what you what you come down to is that you end up with a situation where I think Liverpool fans have in general, I think they prefer regular cup finals than I think the actual hard work, I suppose, of actually really trying to to compete for the league. Because I think if you try and compete for the league, it, it takes about four or five years to get the right level of players, to get the right management structure in, the right ownership, to get everyone in that troika all on the same page, especially the fans as well. So in other words, you're going to have to be really harsh with some players. In other words, what I'd always think with Liverpool is, is that it must be like the second manager, who's basically Klopp, who's tried to get rid of Lucas. And yet every single time they just think, OK, I'm just going to stick you in the reserves, you're a nice player, but you're never going to take us to that absolute top level. You're not quite good enough as a defensive midfielder, you're not a defender, yeah, centre-half, we've, we've shown that this season, and you're not a full-back, you're just a nice player, and you can get us into the top six, maybe top four on a good season, but you can't take us anywhere further. But in the end, he always seems to come back and make 30 appearances. And as a result, they can never seem to move on. In other words, you've always got a situation where even when they nearly won the league under sweater best, Brendan Rodgers, in the end, one of the, the moments earlier, you know, a month before all of the, the Palace and the Chelsea games, is that they're away in the early Sunday game, away at West Brom. They're winning, I think, ten minutes to go, and they've got Colo Torre at the back. He's a cheap signing that they've made. It's a sort of something that could work, but there's always that risk that, you know, if you rely on him, there's a mistake there. And he does, he passes the ball across his box. The, the striker gets the ball, one all. And at the time, there was so much time you know, between you know, sort of February and March to the end of the season. They could have made it up, but that was it. It was that sort of moment where actually if they won that, if you plus that two points, suddenly the whole rest of their season changes. And so often, this is what you get with Liverpool. In other words, when they missed out on Europe, really, this season was the opportunity. You've, you suspected that you know Pep might not might take a year for him to really get used to the Premier League and his squad was a bit mismatched. You knew that Chelsea had a new manager. The possibility was that they you know they might need some time and you know they had problems last year. You know new manager at United, Arsenal have got some weaknesses and it was sort of set up for them. And you saw what Leicester could do and you thought well probably are Leicester going to repeat it again? No. You know, Spurs didn't spend a huge amount of money, weren't that much better. And, you know, they were going to have to deal with the fact that they, you know, had a poor end of the season, finished behind Arsenal, lost to Newcastle 5-1. And they haven't taken advantage of that. You know, they're defensively weak. You know, I can understand why Klopp got, in effect, got rid of Sacco. But this is the difference, I think, between 
sort of Chelsea, I suppose Arsenal to an extent, and the two Manchester's, is that they have the finance to basically be able to have a thirty, you know, a twenty million pound defender not play at all, and it not really have that great an impact. Whereby with Liverpool, they just don't have the resource, especially defensively. It always seems to go on attackers. In other words, it's like when Kenny Dalglish becomes manager. And he sells Torres for this ridiculously overinflated, you know, fifty million plus to Chelsea. They they spend they buy two strikers. They buy Carroll for thirty five. They get Suarez in for twenty two, and it's like, well, did you need that amount of, of strikers? Could you not have just signed one of them? You know, obviously we say I'd say in hindsight it would have been Suarez, and then use the thirty five million on your back four, knowing that worst comes to worst. Even if those back four is you know, it just improves you by ten percent, you can still then buy someone interesting to you know, if Suarez doesn't work out up front. But it always seems to go on the attack. There always seems to be cheaper signings. Even under Julier, you, you get they got Sammy Hoopier in for I think two and two point seven million from I think it was a Dutch side. I can I think it might have been Haremven or twenty, I cannot remember. They get Honcho off of relegated Blackburn. You know, very rarely do they seem to spend proper money on centre-halves. And even when they do, it's like when they sign Lovren, it's because they've got the huge Suarez money. It's not because they've actually targeted it. It's because they have that money anyway. They were committed to signing five or six players, and he was available. And he sort of fitted into what they were looking for. He They were considered like a ball-playing centre-half. Even someone like Sacco, they spent 17 on, which was a fairly decent amount of money. But he does he's not an out-of-the-box centre-half. He doesn't come out and is immediately good. He's ropey for about six, 6 to 12 months. It's only really the back end of last season that he finally sort of kicks into gear. And you can sort of see, you know, what they, why he was bought. But by that point, you know, he then has the whole issue with the drug suspension. He then falls out with the manager... And the manager, I wouldn't say in a fit of peak, but obviously, you know, puts his foot down and, and says, I'm not, you know, you're not coming back. But then suddenly what happens is that they're just not good enough at the back. There's not the depth there to actually allow for him not to be there. Whereby at Man United, you've got Jones, Smalling, Bailey, you can play blind there, you can play Carrick there, you've got a couple of centre-halves in the youth system. You know, at Spurs, you've got Carter Vickers, you've got Wimmer, you can play Dyer there, you can play Wanyama there, you've got Vertonghen, you've got... Alderweireld. You've got that sort of depth. It allows you, in other words, Man City really can have, you know, Vincent Company out for the season. And yes, it has had an impact, but not overtly. In other words, had Stones, had Otamendi, had they had the seasons that their talent and their transfer fees should have you know, performed, they wouldn't have needed him. But when Liverpool do, they end up with, you know, you've got Milner a left-back. And he's not a left-back. And I think the focus is on, oh, well, he scored a load of goals. But they've all been penalties. You know, no matter how well they've gone forward and whether he's done well in terms of crossing... What he hasn't done is kept them solid defensively. They've not done well. They've conceded far too many goals. I mean, this is the thing I, you get with Klopp, and to an extent with 
Brendan Rogers is it seems very overcomplicated. It seems like actually we need to score at least 90, 85, 90 goals, maybe 100 if everything clicks. And yet, in the end, you look at it and to get that, you have to have these kind of just overbalanced. You end up with Moreno at left back. You end up with Milner at left back. You end up buying these sort of centre-halves who can bring the ball forward or who can get goals. But they're not necessarily out-and-out amazing goal, amazing defenders. You know, they always seem to sort of buy these, and especially with goalkeepers, they never seem to have, outside of maybe Pepe Reina, and to an extent Dudek for that one season where he was really good, the rest are always a little bit weak. Vesterveld was always a little bit clumsy. You've got... You know, they spent money on young Carson, Scott Carson. They invested in Kirkland, who you know, had a load of injury problems. They end up with, right now, they've bought Carrias. And Carrias looks a lot. This is basically, you can see the talent is there. But it was always going to be hard to see how an inexperienced goalkeeper in his first year in England was going to be dominant. And his profile was pretty similar to Mignolet. Mignolet's a shot stopper. He's not particularly dominant in the air. He doesn't seem to be particularly dominant, you know, in terms of organising. He always gives off a slight impression of, of sort of chaos, of nerves. And so did Carius. And in the end, this is what it always comes down to, I think, with modern Liverpool, is that you've got, I think, this obsession with playing great football with great players. In other words, they've got more money than Spurs in terms of, you know, the turnover, in terms of the size of the club, stadium and all the rest of it. But they haven't got that top four money, which means that when they do try and spend, you know, like the 22 million they put into Suarez, even if you look at historically, the sort of eight and a half million they put into Collymore, the problem is, is that they've always got to scrimp somewhere else. In the end, you end up with, Stan Collymore, but then you also end up with stinging Bjornaby. <laughs> Whereby if you then compare it to someone like modern Spurs, you know, under Pochettino, what they've done is they've worked out that they can't you know, spend money like Chelsea. They've got to, you know, be a bit smarter than that. So in their last sort of since, you know, the late 90s, they've got a history of buying young players. You know, some of them, you know, like Everington and Simon Davies work. Others don't, but there's always a sense that you can get that play, you can get them cheaply, you know, you can cost control their wages. Worst comes to the worst, they might play 50 games. If they don't quite, if they're not quite up to the standard, you can then sell them on to a lesser team for a profit and then reinvest that money. So that if you do need two or three players, you can then spend some proper money on it. I think that's the difference between, let's say, Pochettino and Klopp. Pochettino has spent, you know, ten million on Davies. He spent, you know, sort of four, three, four million pounds on Trippier. He spent, you know, five, six million pounds on Wimmer. All of those players have been sort of key at different points in terms of keeping the the defense tight. So that even when they weren't, as, and they've had in the last couple of seasons at the beginning, they weren't particularly fluid offensively. They weren't scoring huge amounts of goals. Sometimes they were struggling, but because their defence was so good, they were able to grind things out. In other words, if you look at you know Tottenham's three defeats this season, they've lost 1-0 at United, they lost 2-1 at Chelsea, and 2-0 and at Liverpool. 
that's classic, isn't it? Even in those games where they haven't particularly played well, they were still in with a shout. Even if it's like if you nick a goal. It's like when they went to Man City, they conceded two goals. But they didn't concede four goals, which meant that, you know, when they when Ali got a goal, they were then in with a chance. Son gets it. They, they get a point. Whereby if you look at someone like Liverpool, one of their games, they're two 0 up away at Bournemouth. They're playing really well. And you think, well, if they get a third, this could turn into a rout. But they've got a back four with Milner in, they've got a back four with Lucas. So as a result, they're a bit vulnerable. You know, their their defensive midfielder is Wijnaldum, who really, yes, he can play defensive mid, but he's really a box-to-box player. And as a result, you know, he has scored quite a few goals. He scored some headers and all the rest of it. And that's brilliant. But defensively, he can't be that good. They've conceded a load of goals. You know, same thing as, you know, with Rodgers. They score nearly 100, but they concede 55. And yet there's no sense of... Are we going to spend the money on, you know, defensive players? Or are we just going to maybe change the formation and make them a bit defensively sound? Yes, you're not going to score 95 goals. You're not going to necessarily smash everyone 4-0. But it's more sustainable. You know, in other words, I think with Klopp, you look at it. When they play, when Liverpool are on form, they're brilliant. They can beat the top six with ease. The one thing that they cannot do is they cannot replicate it against the bottom 15 teams in the league. And in the end, as a result, they're third. But they've, not, they've never really, you know, from basically January onwards, they haven't really competed. This was the year when everybody else was in Europe. Everybody else, you know, had issues. This could have been their year to really crack on. Uh, and they haven't. And they, they've still got more questions than answers. And at the end of the day, you're left wondering, well... What are they going to do in the summer? You know, I think another sort of classic player is Henderson. And uh, it comes down to, I think, an, an element of shortcutting. In other words, Liverpool, you know, from pretty much the early 90s onwards, are always looking for a shortcut. They're always looking for a way to get to the top really quickly. It's almost Del Boyish way of, you know, it doesn't matter what we, you know, how many times we try the next one could be it. It's a bit like uh, the Roy Evans team. They always, they end up, and everyone says, oh, they're the Spice Boys, there's all the this, you know, and that they're just mentally weak, and that they're a couple of players short of getting to the, um, getting to the top, to challenge United. And yet, in the end, they end up signing Paul Ince. In other words, they just think, ah, if we sign Paul Ince, that'll solve everything, everything will, you know, he'll be the, 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 the key linchpin, that's, he was quite an expensive signing, but that'll work. And it doesn't. He's sort of just a little bit over the hill. It doesn't blend. It doesn't quite work. And a little bit similar with um, with Henderson. So in other words, they spent £15, million pounds on this quite talented um, young player from Sunderland. Then you can see what they're thinking. It's like, ah, we can sign him. He sort of trends in that kind of direction of Gerrard. He's sort of... Ah, we'll get him, he'll be under Gerard's influence for a couple of years, and then, you know, when Gerard retires, he'll then take on the mantle, become the captain. And he's not really that sort of player. It's a bit like when Spurs did it with Darren Ben. You, you could see what they were thinking. It's like, ah, we can keep Dimitar Berbatov, but we're probably, unless something massively different changes, we're probably losing him at the end of the season to a big club. So what they do is they decide, ah, we'll be preemptive. 
will spend money on Darren Bent. He's young, British, talented, profiles in the right direction for what we do. And they spend about £16.5 million on him. He can be under Berbatov and Keane, play quite a bit. And then if we, he will then be, you know, he'll be fitted into the team. So if we then sell Berbatov, we can reinvest the money in the rest of the squad. And it's a nice idea, but it, it's a shortcut. In other words, Darren Bent was never going to fit in to how Spurs were playing because he just needs a certain type of supply. He needs long balls over the top. He needs things basically configured to suit his game. And as a result, he will score a load of goals. But that's about it. He's not going to contribute a huge amount of assists. There's just going to be bits and pieces. And really, everybody else has to essentially work towards Darren Bent. And of course, it doesn't really work at Spurs. He never gets to the form because he doesn't fit in. And in the end, they're left with this kind of millstone. They're lucky to sell him virtually for the same amount of money to Sunderland. But it hasn't worked because it wasn't sustainable, much in the same way that now you've got a situation with Henderson where... He's very, he's quite an expensive player and they spent quite a few years on him and really he's not a world-class defensive midfielder. He's not really a world-class box-to-box player. He just pops up once in a while and does something great. He's got a great shot on him. He can have games where he passes the ball beautifully. But it's never a sustained run. It's just moments of genius. He's like a bits and pieces cricketer. On occasion, he can take 5 for, you know, 25. On occasions, he can hit a 60. But the end product of it is it's more like he's averaging 30 with the bat, 35 with the ball, and it's not really worth the investment that they've made. In other words, when they signed Milner, they signed him on a, I think, five-year deal somewhere in the vicinity of 100 grand a week. So that's, you know, £25 million pounds plus, you know, you're looking at maybe four or £5 million pounds signing on bonus. So you're literally putting £30 million pounds in, knowing that he's, you know, by the end of that contract, he's going to be 34, 35, and probably not at the level he's at now. No real real sale value. And I can see why they made it, because it was like, ah, oh, well, he can, you know, he's played for Man City, he's a good player, can do all these different roles. But in the end, all he's done is he's not quite ever really fit. He's never been a starter in any one position. He's just fitted in, in and around. And then they just decided, well, okay, we'll stick him at left back because we don't have anything else. And yet at the same time, in the same transfer window, Spurs spent £3 million on Eric Dyer from Sporting Lisbon. And they basically integrated Deli Alley, who they signed for £5 million from MK Dons the January. So that's £8 million. Their wages were obviously a hugely lot less than James Milner. And yet look at what they've done. Dyer yeah, has become has been played centre-half in a 4-4-2. He's played centre, uh, yeah, in a back three. He's played at defensive midfield. He's played at right back. He's excelled. He's scored goals. He's young, cost controlled, English. You know, even though he's had obviously quite a long spell of his life in Portugal, but he's someone that you can build and that they've created and they've done really well. And he's now worth so much more. And he's still, you know, even though they've given him a new contract, it's still cheaper than Milner's deal. And he's contributed goals as well and assists, and he can cross the ball. Deli Alley, you can see how many goals he's scored in the last couple of seasons, how much he's worth, and how they've then fitted both of those, you know, into the team, and they've all worked because they, you know, the the, the players are. It's a well organised outfit. In other words, they can't spend a huge amount of money. They've had to sort of take these punts and be very 
careful with who they've signed. Whereby Liverpool never quite do that. There's always a little bit of a shortage somewhere. In other words, at first glance, Liverpool team looks really strong. You've got Klein. You know, he's a great right back. You, you've got, you know, obviously, the, the front is always got populated with talent. You've got Henderson. You've got Wijnaldum. On their day, they're brilliant players. You've got Firmino, Coutinho. And yet, whenever there's a couple of injuries, suddenly you've got, you know, against when they've played Man United away. You know, the right back's injured, Klein's injured. But then they're making, they're giving Trent Alexander a debut at Old Trafford. It's like, well, you short, well who's your backup right back? You know, if you've got a choice really at left back between Moreno and Milner, that's, and if literally your second or third choice centre half is Lucas, and Lucas has played quite a bit in midfield as well, then your depth isn't. It, there isn't enough there. It's tissue paper thin. And then, as a result, they've conceded far too many goals. And yet, really, for all of their attacking skills, they're still joint, you know, they're third in terms of goals per game. There's, you know, Chelsea and Tottenham have scored more goals per game and have conceded half as many goals. You know, it, it's just, it does seem, you know, inefficient. And I think the fans have to play a role in that. I think at some point, I think the Liverpool fans have probably found it a little bit easier to really, you know, from the 90s onwards, accept cup finals. You know, because really, in the end, the League Cup final is never really a springboard to anything. It is just a day out of Wembley, you get a trophy, and, you know, it's good. You get you know, the two-legged semi-final, you know, you've won something by sort of February, March time, and that's great. But it rarely ever goes on to anything. You know, when we won the, the League Cup in 99, didn't go anywhere. The, that team was the same team next year, it didn't kick on. The 2008 League Cup winning Spurs team didn't kick on. But the last couple of seasons, even if they haven't won anything, they've at least kicked on. They're now competing on a better level. In other words, each year. But there's always been sacrifices to that. They haven't put as much effort into the cup, especially into to Europe. But you can see where the improvements are being made. With Liverpool, it always seems... It, it's hard, really, to see how they've... Considering how much talent they've had, I mean, if you if you look at what they've had come through and look at their youth system, it's not well funded. They they haven't produced any great youth coaches. You know, the the current person that runs their youth coaching system is Alex Inglethorpe, who was the manager of Exeter when they drew at Old Trafford a few you know, donkeys years ago. He joins Spurs. He's part of their. You know, he helps overhaul and improve Spurs' youth system. But he gets headhunted to go to Liverpool. In other words, the Liverpool boot room don't create any youth team talent. You know, in other words, they've been over-reliant on, on the local area, which has prov- provided Owen, McManaman, Fowler, Carragher, you know, Gerrard. And if you think about it, and if you think about all the, the talent they've had up front in terms of Torres, Suarez, Coutinho, stuff. How they haven't with, you know, four or five great youth team players who played hundreds of games, with all of that talent, how they not managed to actually compete. If you go back to the 90s, I mean, I think one of the the elements that's, that's fascinating is that we all know that the 90s was Man United's decade because they win everything and all the rest of it. But I think on a deeper level... It's because they really enjoy what the 90s stood for. It really was 
big stadium building. It was multiple kits. It was commercialization. It was expanded television. It was, you know, the era of duopoly. There's always two teams, and usually one of them is Man United. But the fans go for it. They, they buy all of these kits. If they didn't, then, you know, it wouldn't have expanded as much. There wouldn't have been a third kit if their second kit didn't sell. There was so much desire for Man United in terms of, you know, the megastore, the, the Red Cafe, MUTV. And also, if you think about it, the ownership jumped on top of it. They loved redeveloping it. In other words, Man United, Old Trafford is the first ground in the country that ever had an executive box in the 60s. You know, in other words, they were able to... And they loved it. Ferguson didn't have a problem, even though he has socialist tendencies and you know he's a strong working class Labour and all the rest of it. He has no real problem with you know the expansion of Man United and the, the commercialization of it. The players jump on it. You know you have Beckham, you have Cristiano Ronaldo. All of those people love being part of the sort of Man United machine. Liverpool do the same sort of thing, but they they're not quite. They don't quite jump on it as much. In other words, you know. The, Although they have this strong social thing because of all the tragedies and everything else, and I'm not taking that away, and that's a really almost in a way a separate issue. They do redevelop Anfield. <laughs> they put a McDonald's in the cop. You know they do have you know, they, they, they you have the Spice Boys. They the players do enjoy that media, but they don't jump on it. In other words, the ownership just just does it because everyone else is doing it. You know it. They're not quite as able and I think this is where what what it really comes down to is that if you look at the, the boot room and what it actually was they were they were a fairly traditional club you know they did what everyone else did at the time they weren't particularly outrageous they weren't it wasn't it wasn't pure genius what it was is they just did things better than everybody else in other words they signed, you know, if you look at some of the key pillars of the, the team of the 70s, they, they, they signed Kevin Keegan from Scunthorpe. They signed Graham Souness, you know, from Middlesbrough. That's what everybody else was doing at the time. It wasn't in any way, shape or form radical. You know, the, you know they, they were great at home. They had good European runs. A lot of teams in the British teams in the 70s, 80s did. It wasn't the only... So it was granite. It was just that, you know, you had the culture. You had... That meant that Liverpool did have a sort of worldwide following and a national following. That, but then again, Man United in the sixties did, you know, in the seventies, and a worldwide following because of you know sixty eight and Law and Best and. But the one it's basically made out of granite. In other words, you've got the you know culture, the leadership, and everything else. The sliver of gold in that granite, which is what makes Liverpool last over the 70s, 80s and the late 60s and to a tiny extent the, the early 90s is the boot room. And it's not because the managers they produce are that forward thinking. They're all great men in their own rights. But what it is, is that it allows the club to keep regenerating. So in other words, instead of, you know, whereby every single other great sort of team that was created by someone ends up falling apart. You know, Billy Nicholson leaves Spurs, you know, because he, you know, he just, the 70s, it's beyond his ken. And then they again go through a few of really poor managers. And by the late 70s, they've been relegated. You know, Man United never quite get over, you know, Matt Busby. And the players that they had, you know, getting old. Charlton, you know, best going off of the, the, the well, 
just going off of the, the ranch and, you know, law getting old. The same thing happens with Leeds, really, once Revy leaves and the key older, you know, the key components of that team age. The difference is with Liverpool is that there's by the time the manager's got old, he's been replaced and that manager then replaces players. So there's always someone new. And this is the, the real difference. I think we're, we're conditioned by the Premier League with its helter-skelter, you know, managers being fired, transfer windows and all the rest of it, to thinking that it's actually very chaotic. On the surface, it is. But actually, if you look below it, what you have is you have a lot of teams with a clear ID, ideology. You've got Southampton. They know that they've got their youth system. You know they can buy people from Celtic because they're good enough you know, they've all got talent, so if you look at Wanyama, and if you look at... Take Wanyama, for instance. They, they, you know, they sign him from Celtic for about you know, 10, 11 million pounds. They've seen him in the Champions League. They see he's got all of the key elements, but they know he's a little bit raw. So in other words, he's a bit too raw for any one of the sort of top six to take a risk because he might not get in the team as a result. You know, he'd then just fall by the wayside and they sell him up for a loss. So they can basically train him up, get him up to Premier League quality, and then they'll improve. And at the end of it, they can then sell him on for, you know, that transfer. They've done the same thing with Virgil van Dijk. In other words, you accept for the first six months they might make some mistakes, they might not get in the team, but eventually they will get there. And that's the difference. In other words, and the same thing they've done with managers, they've accepted that you know they can they can replenish the players that they sell on, keep the money, and slowly but surely grow. And the, you know at this point, it's now decision making on where they go next for Southampton. Same things really happened at Spurs. They brought young English players through. They brought some youth team players through. They brought some quite intelligent mid-level buyers like Ericsson and Batongan from Ajax. And they've now created, you know, something. They've got the right manager in, and they're building. Same things happening at Chelsea. They've got the youth structure in. They've got, you know, you know, they've got Michael Manolo. They've got Marina Graniszkowski, and they've got Roman. There is a there is an amount of of organisation in these football clubs. Even if they are changing managers, even if they are spending a huge amount of money, they're doing it in quite a structured way. Even someone like Stoke are doing it in a structured way. Burnley are. They're working within their means and to a specific plan. We, But the 70s and 80s, that's not really the case. The manager isn't within six games of being fired at any given moment. They have two, three, four years. They have a transfer window up until basically the mid, you know, mid to early April. They can just sign someone whenever. There's nothing to stop them. So in other words, if you're like halfway through the season, you're not doing well, buy a striker. So as a result, what we think was stability was actually entirely unstable. Really, what it was is that you know you had as you know you had as you were just me a lot of managers were just meandering along because unless you were in the top three or four and trying to qualify for Europe, or if you were in the bottom six or seven, and there's twenty four teams in the league, there was a whole swathe of about eight to nine, ten teams at any given point that weren't going anywhere, that were just going along and as a result there were strange transfers and managers could just you know really keep trotting out the same team year after year without making huge changes and so as a as a result that's what made Liverpool in a way revolutionary 
because actually they there wasn't that drop off. There wasn't a situation where okay we had a good run, a couple of cup finals, a couple of wins. Actually, everyone kind of turned thirty. They've dropped off, and okay, we'll sign this player to keep them. You know, a bit like sort of Man City in the seventies, where you know they're all you know. Oh, okay, we'll just sign Rodney Marsh. He'll be the final key to the thing. And it's like, well, no. How would? At what point was Rodney Marsh really going to work at City? And it doesn't work. And you get these players who just don't fit in, but they've just been shoehorned in there because the manager's like, okay, well, it's February and we've lost a couple of games in a row and we're trying to get up the league. We'll sign someone, anyone, and see how it goes. You know, it's not a strategic because you didn't have to have all your transfers done by the start of the season. If you didn't, if someone was playing badly in September, you could just go buy the next player, which is interesting. But this is the whole point. In other words, by the time you get to 90... What happens is, and this is where Kenny Dalglish plays his interesting role, because he's had this fantastic career at Celtic under Jock Steen, and he's then gone to Liverpool, had been laid on several managers. He's brilliant, he's a captain, he's a leader, he's a brilliant football player, very intelligent, and he takes over as, you know, player-manager, and then they just carry on with all of the success, domestic. And yet, if you look at it, he's not a particularly ideological manager. He likes playing good football. That's what he's grown up with his entire career. But he's not a future-proofed manager. In other words, when he leaves, very suddenly, there really isn't you know, a long-term replacement. The boot room is basically empty outside of you know, Roy Evans. You know, the, the youth structure is the same as everybody else's youth structure. Melwood is as the, you know, is the same qualities as every other training ground in the country. There's nothing particularly overtly special about it. You know, he's brought some players in, but eventually, you know, they're ageing just the same way as he is ageing as a manager. Even though he's a young manager when he quits the first time, he's a old head on young shoulders. You know, there, there's there's parallels to, to, to Brian Clough in a way. They both... Burnout, and obviously you have to understand why Dalglish burned out, and you can't argue with him quitting at that moment. I fully, fully understand. It's not critical, but the same way that Cl- is that the world is slowly changing, and they're not particularly well prepared. In other words, you know, he wasn't at the forefront of football when he quit. Even someone, even people like you know George Graham, Ferguson, they. Even to an extent, you possibly could have say Howard Wilkinson. They were thinking and moving with things that seemed to be moving closer to working towards the 90s in the Premier League, whereby Daglish isn't. So in other words, when he leaves Liverpool, he, he goes to Blackburn after a few years of hiatus. And he does well. The football they play is perfectly acceptable, and they win the league. But he's just spent a, quite a bit of money, already had some good players there, and he's just made it work. He then leaves, they fall apart, goes to Newcastle, spends quite a bit of money again, already had a quite a good squad. They have some great moments in Europe, but they're inconsistent and it doesn't really work out. <laughs> he, he then goes to Celtic as the sort of director of football, puts in John Barnes. The results are pretty good. They win most of their games, but he never creates a narrative. And by the time they're knocked out by uh, Inverness Caledonian Thistle, he's gone, Barnes is gone. And he then pops back up at Liverpool in their sort of crisis period. And he's still director of football and then becomes manager. 
but at no point does he seem to know how to build the next great Liverpool. There isn't any of that there. You know, he signs Andy Carroll. Not great. You know, there, there's nothing particularly interesting and fascinating. He doesn't seem to have a plan that says, okay, this is how I'm going to rebuild Liverpool. This is from the, the groundwork up. In other words, you, you can't compare him to Cruyff. When Cruyff turns up at Ajax and then he turns up at Barcelona, where he just builds everything. The training ground changes. La Misa, the youth academy changes. The playing style changes. The personnel changes. And everything after that you know, can be at some point drawn back to Cruyff. Never happens with Dalglish. I think in a way you probably put it down to that every single place he pitched up to as a manager was already good. <laughs> or at least had a track record of success. Newcastle under Keegan... Obviously, the success you know, <clears throat> Liverpool had had for the preceding 15 years, of which he'd been a huge part of it. And Blackburn was spending huge amounts of money you know, relative to the early 90s. And the same thing, you know, Celtic, they were already a huge outfit in Scotland. And even when he comes back to Liverpool, they're already, you know, one of the fifth, sixth biggest, biggest clubs in, you know, in the country. And they're top 10, pretty much top 10, 15 in the world. He's never really gone to a place and built it up from the ground up. And as a result, well, his th football management skills and the football he plays is perfectly good. There's nothing you can overtly criticise him for. His ideology of football and, and how to build a football club is useless. In other words, and that's where some of the issues lie. You know, it, I think one of the things that Stephen Gerrard's come back and he's now going to be the, I think, under-18s manager and one of the key things he made in his sort of first remarks to the press is how his team's going to be very strong in a tackle. And it's just sort of like, well, is that really going to somehow change the way how, you know, the, the, the talent pipeline into Liverpool? Is that, in effect, why Liverpool haven't produced that many young players over the last sort of 10 years? Is that they were, weren't strong in the tackle? It's because they didn't put much resource into it. And let's face it, the resource that they put into youth team players was on attacking players. They spent a load of money on 16-year-old Jordan Ibe, and they spent a load of money on 15-, 16-year-old Raheem Sterling. You know, that's it. It's We've got a certain amount of resource we're willing to put in to attacking players, and that's more of the budget than it is defensively, which is why they've produced more attacking players out of their youth system than they have defensive players. Whereby... You look at some of the, the, the sort of youth team that they signed Kevin Stewart, who is kind of their like third choice defensive midfielder. He played a few times this season. I think he's just been given the contract extension. He came from Spurs, but <clears throat> he got released. He never played. I think he might have gone to bench a couple of the early round uh, Carling Cup games. And yet. He never made an appearance in the Premier League. He'd never really gone on loan anywhere. And of his, of the sort of age gap, you know, from where he came from, you know, you had people like, you know, Livermore, Ryan Mason, Ben Saleb. All of those players, you know, got quite, you know, extensive runs in the first team. You know, Tom Carrollton, you know, all of those players of a similar sort of age group. They all got, you know, kicked on in the Premier League. He didn't, and yet at the same time, because he was well-known to Alex Inglethorpe, I can imagine, but he got signed. But that's, you know, he's not a high-end player. 
in the end he wasn't going all he was going to do at best was be a fill-in and that's really what he's done and he's now been sort of linked you know to being sold to one of i think brighton they might make some a, a good profit on him but in terms of his actual impact for liverpool as a player no he hasn't done anywhere near you know he hasn't, he hasn't changed it in other words he hasn't displaced lucas you know he's not been a key cog and that's where it comes down to is that you know all of these people who have gone into the media, none of them have yet gone back to Liverpool and appreciably improved it or come up with a new plan, a, a boot room mark two, or some way that they're going to come up with an ideology which will allow Liverpool to compete with Man City. And I think that the issue then is also on the ownership because there's no one really brilliant from the ownership. John Moores isn't you know, a, a forward-thinking owner. He puts his money in, he does a solid job, but you know he keeps hold of Roy Evans for a couple of years, probably longer than he should have done. So by the time Julier takes over, a couple of those players are sort of on their way down, and you know Madman lets his contract runs out and leaves. Fowler's not quite the same as he was in the mid nineties, and he doesn't really fire Evans. What he does is he makes them co-manager, and it was just never going to work. So within three months, they've had to then got rid of Evans and then made Julier, you know, manager. It's probably part of the reason why I think Liverpool fans love Rafa the Gaffer. Because in the end, what he did, he was the closest manager they've had in recent years who had an easily repeatable way of getting from A to B and getting them up to the point where they were in title races. You know, he wins the, the Champions League and that's hugely important. And yes, it was a way for Liverpool fans to, I suppose, be back where they believe they should be. But... In reality, what that was is it was, you know, it's a cup run. It's what, you know, Monaco had done the previous year in getting to the Champions League final. It's, you know, it's comparable to what Leicester did last year in winning the Premier League. It's the way how they've done it isn't old Liverpool, it's new Liverpool. It's going on a cup run, having an amazing comeback. And it's brilliant, but it, that's all it is. It doesn't go anywhere else. It's just... You've had a great moment. Here's your picture. Here's your Champions League. It doesn't lead anywhere else, which is entire antithesis of what old Liverpool were. Was that if they won something, they won the next year and they got better. But at least Rafa the Gaffer, because he signs Alonso, he signs Pepe Reina. You know, the defense seems to be a lot stronger, and it seems more likely, and it seems more repeatable. Whereby with Klopp, you seem to have to have an amazing squad that you pro that Liverpool basically don't have the money or the youth's team to fill up enough of those squad places. So then they will always be caught short. In other words, they'll have thirty million pound Roberto Firmino, but he's a thirty million pound striker who scores 10, 10 to fifteen. It, it's not quite enough, which then means that the rest of the team. So in other words, you have to have a left back that scores six goals in Milner. You have to have a defensive midfielder in Wijnaldum that gets five to six. You know, you, you, you put a huge amount of pressure on a Coutinho to have an amazing year. You, you put, you know, it, you're sort of always wondering, well, can we just, you know, shoehorn in Sturridge into the lineup so that, you know, use his goals to really make up for the fact that, well, you know, Firmino does all of this, you know, hard work for the team and the running and everything else and fits in with sort of the Gen Gen pressing the football he wants them to play. Is it the most efficient way of actually scoring goals, winning football games? 
and I, I don't see it. You know, and if you look at the Fenway ownership, you know, um, and I'm a huge Red Sox fan, so I, I've, I've you know I've come across them in the way how they do things, is that they're very competent. <laughs> they're very you know they're well organized. They have a clear idea of what they're trying to do. But their expertise is in American sports and, you know, baseball, to an extent, NASCAR. What they do is they will invest something, they will then get someone in and they will have a plan. But it's very, very unlikely to be cutting edge. It's just going to be competent people, you know, sticking to the plan. Which is, you know, really what they've done with Klopp. And it's a bit like why they end up with Kamali. Damien Kamali is a perfectly decent scouting director what he does is he will go out there and he will get you good football players but it's not to any sort of plan what he gives you is a load of players and then it's really the manager that then has to jimmy all of those pieces into a coherent team which is often what doesn't happen in other words you just get a load of nice players but you don't he's not a forward thinker He's not going to come up with some intricate, beautiful plan so that will somehow give you five or ten great youth team players, four or five really you know, brilliant signings that you have £25 million, and then find four or five gems from the middle of nowhere, and then that then builds into a team that can, you know, average age 25, that can win for the next five years. He will get you some good players, he'll get you some players that don't work out, and it's really the manager that has to, to put the genius in. Which is really what's happened is is that you know this is where Liverpool have gone really is that what you now have is managers who are under huge pressure like a couple of times this season you know Klopp has said I need to win something ASAP which then means that you then have to give you know you end up in the semi-finals of the Carling Cup you go to the you know the final and you then the pressure is on to have the same great players. So in other words, you have to try and find yourself a Torres, a Sturridge, a Sterling, to then play the beautiful football, <laughs> to in effect and win stuff. But it's it's all really a smokescreen. It is always, I'll give you, you know, basically what Sweater Vest and to an extent Klopp has said, I will give you some amazing performances. We will batter teams. We'll win five, six nils. But you can you will literally be able to pencil us in for seventy-five goals a season. And some of the attacking play that you will see will be brilliant. What it isn't is it's not going to be a team that scores seventy goal, seventy-five goals, concedes twenty-seven, and is there in late April, early May, competing for the title. And actually, to get that, we might have to have two or three years where we're not focused on the cup, where we don't necessarily take the Europa League hugely seriously, and we just build exponentially. Mm. You know, I think one of the things Klopp is brilliant at is basically with his personality, is he fits in with what Liverpool want to see in a manager. But the flip side of it is, is does he have the ability... To build a back four. Does he have the ability. To get a team that will win. Against everyone. And will he be able to make those kind of. Concessions. To just practicability. In other words. Can he sit there and say. Okay. Maybe we'll have to basically put in another defensive player. Or maybe we might have to sell. A Coutinho. 
and then replace him with another attacking player, but maybe not quite as, you know, dynamic. But if I then use the other 30, 40 million pounds and get a couple of backup fullbacks, so that, you know, a couple of backup centre-halves, and then actually, you know, really go around it like that way, build from the back, then, you know, once you've got that great defence, then you can be a bit more judicious. Because basically, you can buy defenders that last five to seven years, who form a core. And then you can basically use the rest of, you know, the year three transfer money on some attacking baubles that will then take you on. I think this is the whole point, is that Liverpool have just misused their resource from the 90s onwards, in a way that Ferguson didn't. In other words, look at it. They had Rush, they had Barnes, they you know, they had, in key positions in the 90s, players who had won everything, been there, done that, lived and breathed, lived one, understood, and could be mentors. They had all of the same sort of young talent. Some of their talent was almost better than United's, to an extent. And yet, they don't get close. The manager isn't... I mean, it's like the, the old um, Neil Ruddock story. It's that Neil Ruddock is basically returning from an injury, and he's in the gym at Melwood. And basically, the, the um, fitness coach under... Roy Evans says, okay, Razor, what you need to do is you need to basically be on this bike for 20 minutes. You know, really work up a sweat, you know, get yourself back in shape. So Razor starts on the bike. The uh, fitness trainer says, I'll be back in 20 minutes. What happens? Immediately gets off the bike, picks up, picks up a sun, eats a couple of bacon sandwiches. And then just a couple minutes before, you know, the trainer comes back, he splashes a load of water on himself gets back on the bike, and the, the trainer goes, oh, brilliant, Razor, fantastic, top work. Everyone can learn from him, because there's a bunch of YTS boys in the gym as well. It's that kind of principle. In other words, you know, they make a lot of now signings. You know, you look at Staunton, Julian Dix, or Don Hutchinson. They're all talented players, and, you know, David James, players like that. And in the end, they all end up having really decent Premier League careers, just... None of them at Liverpool. <laughs> and and that's the thing. There's always a sense that, that they're always literally wanting something now. Rather than saying, well, okay, it's a bit like, you know, with the Deli Alley signing. Yeah, you sign him in January. You don't see him to the end of the season. You know, they weren't expecting him when they went to his first pre-season. They were thinking, well, we might loan out to a championship team. We might just keep him on the bench and maybe by the end of the year, he's... You know, he kicked on. The same thing happened with Dyer. But the the key point of all of this was is that they were expecting it to take a while. Just because it went well, that's brilliant. That's happy days. But that's I don't think what Liverpool are prepared to do. I don't think outside of you know even with Rafa the Gaffer, the, the signings that he made in terms of Alonso, Reyna, and Torres. They're all pretty much now signings. They're players who can just kick straight on. And I think until they essentially improve their youth structure, and that can take years, and it's not something you can rely on unless you have a you know a great track record. And I'm, I think at this point, you can't. And if they haven't, and if this is one of the things, if the only way that they've been able to get team players through the youth system has been through 
over, massively overpaying for these young talents in terms of Sterling and Ibe. You know, that, the, the only way that that is trending is up. In other words, the more it's going to cost more and more for you to do that each time. And it lessens the thing. In other words, you sign Ali for five million and he turns right. That's brilliant. If you sign the next Raheem Sterling for fifteen million at sixteen, that's not great value for money because if it doesn't work, that's fifteen million pounds the drain. And in the end, it puts his level of performance has to be so high just to justify that money. Mm. You know, there is no boot room mark two. So no one from the executive, no one from the ownership, none of them, the managers, has really been able to do it. You know, you hear that a lot of the ex-Liverpool players, they come down to and help out with the youth system, but none of them have managed. None of them have really essentially, you know, come up with... No one seems to base... Everyone seems to be able to comment on Liverpool, but no one seems to have a dossier that they, they've gone to the club and said, this is how we can be... This is what we can do. This is how the advantages we have in terms of uh, buying players. This is the what the what the market inefficiencies are. The bits that we can, the players that we can get. In other words, this is the one. If you take the differences between, let's say, Liverpool and Spurs, is that Liverpool, even when they're not doing well, even when they're sort of sixth or seventh, they always were able to get players. You know, because they have that cultural meaning. You know, they always were able. You know that they were able to get Suarez, whereby let's say a Fulham, if even if Fulham were in the same position, seventh, you know, knocking on the door for Europe, wouldn't have been able. Even if they had the money, it's a bit like the the famous one was when we signed um, Raphael Van der Vaart for about just somewhere between sort of eight million to ten million. And we got him from Real Madrid. And the same summer, Bolton had spent £11 million on Johan Elmander. Now, Johan Elmander was a decent player, but that's the difference. Is that they put that the same money, you know, probably the same level of, you know, wages. And yet, we were able to get Raphael van der Waal, who turned into a brilliant player for a couple of years. They got Johan Elmander, who ended up being just a solid player. <laughs> And I think it comes down to this, is like, if you look at it, Spurs are a moving stadium and playing it for a year at Wembley is going to be hard work. You know, Chelsea have committed to three years, possibly even four years, possibly at Wembley, you know, while they redevelop their ground. West Ham have said goodbye to Upton Park. And yet if you look at Liverpool, they haven't done that. They, they've, you know, they, they thought, you know, they've looked at it and they've spent maybe 20 odd years with the possibilities of maybe sharing a stadium with Everton, building something in Stanley Park, maybe on, you know, near the Docklands and all the rest of it. And yet, in the end, what they've, they've come down to is they've just fudged it a bit. They've just put an extra tier on, you know, the, the main stand. And I think this is, I think it says something about the Troika is that... There wasn't a hardness, you know, around the Liverpool fan base in terms of what they wanted. In other words, it could well lead to, you know, the way how football is trending is that you're going to need these huge academies that are basically villages. You're going to possibly need 
satellite teams. You're going to need big ownership that willing to put in the money. You're going to need a big stadium, not just seats. You're talking about attractions and bits and pieces that make it not just a football ground. It's a football ground plus. And you're going to need a huge training ground. And it's going to have to have a, just things that you never imagined a training ground 15, 20 years ago would need. And there's always gets there's always that reluctance between the ownership and the fans really to kick on to say well actually if we want to be the new live if we want to go back to being old Liverpool that's what you're gonna have to do you're gonna have to give up the cop you're gonna have to move somewhere else and it'll be painful and difficult and you'll lose a tiny bit of your history but that's what future Liverpool need to do to be to create new memories so in other words whereby it's not a cup run that's turned into a Champions League. You know, it's not just, oh, you've had a, a, a magical season where everything goes well and a few of the other teams had a, an off year, like a Leicester. It's where you actually sit there, you plan out for three or four years, and you win. And not only do you win, you win the next year, the year after. And then, you know, you can then start thinking about doubles, going back to, you know, the the cup you know the league cup final the FA Cup and Europe and all of the bits and pieces that you know Liverpool have that potential you know you compare them to West Ham West Ham don't have that potential you know West Ham are just trying to build up to the top six to actually qualifying outright for the Europa League that is currently their level you know Southampton's level is okay qualifying for the Europa League and then getting out of the Europa League draw. That's the one thing that Southampton's biggest failure has been. It's not been getting, you know, they've done all right in the Cups. It's the Europa League. If they can get through the group stages, then they can sit there and say, OK, you've got all of the building blocks that Sevilla had, and they won three in a row. That's what you can do. I think to a certain extent, Liverpool essentially gave up that sort of leadership that they had over football from the 70s and 80s, they basically, I think they gave it up. There wasn't anyone there who had the foresight. So not Souness, not Roy Evans, not even really Rafa the Gaff. Rafa the Gaff is a great manager, but he's, you know, what he does is goes in there, organises the team and tries to, to win. What he isn't is someone who is you know, foresighted, who's going to you know, change everything about the club in a Cruyff. What they need is a Cruyff. They need someone who has got the heft with the fans, with the ownership, to, and then brings in his own people, brings in some of the, the Liverpool genius. I think that's the, the thing that concerns me probably more than anything else, is that none of the sort of Gleish generation seem to make great managers. You know, Lawrence and Hansen ended up being, you know, commentators. Phil Nil, you know, failed at Coventry. Jan Mulby just did well at Kidderminster. You know, you've got a situation where, you know, the nineties the Liverpool, you know, Red Naps a a, a a TV analyst. So is McManaman, so is James. And and that's and whereby someone even at United there is still people, you know, like, you know, Giggs tried to become the manager. You know, Neville tried a manager career, although it failed. So did, you know, Phil Neville. There does seem to be more people in and around Manchester United who are trying to create Man United the future 
then Man then Liverpool are future. And I think everything that I've heard from Steven Gerrard, I, I'm not going to lie to you, I don't see him being the, the answer. Uh, you know, because it, you know, he was undecided about management. You know, he made it uh, probably a solid choice not to be MK Don's manager, but he's really just dipping his toe in the water. You know, it, under 18 manager, even if you become head of the youth team, head of the youth structure, so academy director, that will have an influence and, you know, you will always have good players from that little catchment area. They will have the money to buy people in, you know, young talent. But that only has a limit that you can't, you know, you have to take on all of the, the kind of, you have to take on a, a much higher role. You have to be, you know, a bit like Brian Marwood at um, Man City before he left. I think the classic example is, if you look at what Steven Gerrard done, so he's done quite a bit of commentating, played a couple of years out in the MLS, and now has you know, helped out a bit, and now is under-18s manager next season. If you compare him to, let's say, Patrick Vieira, he ended his career at Man City, and he was undecided, a bit like Gerrard, what to do next. But what he did was he wanted to stay at Man City, they wanted him to stay, they saw his potential. And so what they said is, look, work where you want in the in the organisation. So he did a few months in marketing, did a few months in, you know, the account. He basically worked in all these different bits, did a little bit on the youth side of it, did a little bit on the kind of player development and on the scouting. And eventually he's decided, okay, I'd like a career in management. So what he's done is because they have a satellite team, they've then, you know, pushed him on and he's become the New York FC manager. Now, managing in the MLS is very complicated. The rules in terms of the uh, roster, in terms of the players you can sign, designated players, the st actual structure. In other words, in the MLS, you only have uh, X amount of um, flights that you can make on a private jet. The rest of the time, you're going coach. So you have to make very clear you know, which flights you want, you know, you're willing to basically use for your cross-country flights. So it's very complicated. There's a vast difference between, let's say, the youth level and some of the players. You might have to deal with, you know, kind of a Pirlo and a David Villa. And the other side, you might deal with a kid who's just been drafted out of college. Who only, and in college, they only play, I think, 10, 12 games a season. So it's a huge... And yet he's done quite well. He's taken an expansion team to the playoffs. So he's got all of this experience where he's been basically sort of an academy director. He's been a front office person. He's now managing, you know, in a, in, a, in a tough media market in New York. So he's really prepared at any point. He can be the next Man City manager. He can be the next director of football. He can possibly even, if he really wants to, become the next CEO. Whereby with Gerard, what's, what's his, you know, kind of ceiling? You know, I think Patrick Vieira and what, a lot of the work he's done at the uh, academy level, if you look at the way how good, well, Man City play at youth team level, and if you compare it with the sort of success Liverpool have had recently, and their youth system is no, it's light years behind. And I think if you're using the rhetoric of, oh, we'll, we'll get them strong in the tackle, that's what youth football needs. That's, I don't see how that is going to <laughs> manifest itself into... Liverpool Mark III. <laughs> so we've had, you know, old Liverpool, sort of Shankly, all the way through to Dalglish, and, you know, Mark II basically being, you know, Souness up to, to Klopp. I can't see how the Liverpool media industrial complex is going to create Mark III. 
and I don't see how the ownership, I don't see anyone on the ownership side of it who's going to, and I don't, I think I'm going to be harsh on this one, I think for all of the qualities and the abilities that Jurgen Klopp has, I don't see him having the practical ability to create a team that's going to win year in, year out, or that is at least going to make up the steps one by one. I think it's always going to be a, a battle between the resource that he needs to be truly great, which is really what the Bayern Munich team, sorry, the Borussia Dortmund team that he had, who had all of those attacking players who he was able to buy from Germany. And, you know, he was able to, because it really was, you know, effectively a duopoly, <laughs> because they had the, the youth structure that was a lot stronger because of the, the way how the Bundesliga was set up, there was always a lot more talented Germans at the clubs who were a lot smaller, like uh, an Augsburg or Hoffenheim, where, you know, and a structure at Dortmund where over the last, since they had their kind of media, you know, related, you know, economic nightmare in the early 2000s where they nearly went bankrupt, they've got, they have a, a structure where they just buy great young players from all across the world and then put in a couple of, you know, I wouldn't say holding players, but just, you know, players in their late 20s who, you know, have the experience and then they can, you know, build that as a spine around these young players. Liverpool haven't really done that, you know, pretty much since the 90s, you know, because they had that strength, but they, they didn't utilise it. But, you know, they had Redknapps, they had, you know, McManamans, they had Fowlers. They've always had talent, they've always had resource. That's what Liverpool Mark II is, is that some of the Liverpool Mark II players were almost better than some of the Liverpool Mark I players. But the ownership, the managers, weren't good enough. So two-thirds of that Troika weren't up to scratch to match and utilise and get those players that Ferguson did, who would just do a job and allow the better players to kick on and get the, the sort of consistent results that you need to win. And that's what Klopp hasn't done. He's almost a little bit like Guardiola. He's just trying to, you know, so he was just trying to get over the mountain. He's not trying to get around it or through it. He's just going to go over the top. And it, all that will ever need is more and more resource. You know, it's a bit like, you know, all quiet on the Western Front. I just need three more attackers. I just need more, you know, I need a, a centre-half that can score five goals. I need a goalkeeper that can kick the, you know, that is beautiful in possession. When really all, all you need is a better strategy that's more repeatable. And so I think to, to end this, I'm going to focus on the fans. Because I think the fans have really got to make a decision over what they want. Do they want Liverpool Mark II where you get lots of cup finals? You get great football. You get the possibility that if it all goes right, you might win the league. Or do you want to actually go and try and create Liverpool Mark Three that has all of the hallmarks of Liverpool Part One, Mark One, which is basically you're going to have to focus on developing youth coaches. You've got to get the youth infrastructure perfect. You're going to have to accept two or three years of rebuilding, whereby you literally will have to be harsh on people. You will have to get rid of the Lucases of the world, the people that aren't going to get you where you want to go. 
you've got to make the possibility where you might have to sell one of your brilliant attacking players, even if you lose 20, those 25 goals, but you reinvest the money and you become a tighter unit and a unit that is more likely to succeed. You don't score 85 goals, you score 70, but you only can see 20. And you then have to have a manager that maybe doesn't have the personality of Jurgen Klopp. You don't get the you know, amazing comebacks, but what you get is success. But sustainable success. Where And you might have to move stadium. You might have to you know, do some of the commercial things that I think Liverpool aren't, are just a bit reluctant to do. And I think you know, in terms of ownership are a bit reluctant. And that's the choice Liverpool fans have to make. And I think they, they have just as much of a say in it. I think if, if, if Liverpool fans sit there and say, I'm tired of, of basically having these false dawns of League Cup finals, what I want is 38 games where we just focus on the league. And I want, you know, year one, year two, year three, and by year four, this team, whatever it is, even if it isn't aesthetically beautiful, to be in com- competing. And I'm not, I'm willing to even have a year where, in the Champions League, we just we don't focus on it. We're not looking to win another Europa European Cup because yes, we can win it, but then that requires you to focus all your energy. It has to be a cup run, whereby what you're looking to do is to build the side that wins the league and then wins the Champions League. Good night.